2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humbly humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. So good to see you this morning. We are moving our way through the book of Second Corinthians, and we are almost done. When we look at books like this and chapters like this, one of the things that's a real challenge is, what does this mean to me? Some verses, it pretty, can be pretty self-evident. But this was a particularly personal letter that Paul was writing to a particular church. And to try to carefully say, what are the principles that we live out of? Because what's happening here is a very particular circumstance. There are people in Corinth, still a minority now, who are against Paul and who are saying, you are not God's person, you are not spiritual enough for us. And most of the church has turned back to Paul and has said, yes, we embrace this gospel that you've put, but some are not. So he is addressing these this minority group very specifically. And basically what he's saying is, I'm a coming. That's essentially, if you had to break down this last section, we're beginning the, the third and last section of the letter, which are the last three chapters, or four chapters, 10, 11, 12, and 13, and he's about to make another visit, a third visit to this church, and he's saying, I'm coming. They've been saying, look, you write these letters that are so filled with uh, 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 boldness, but when we've seen you, you seem to be just kind of unsure of yourself. You don't seem to be very impressive. So Paul is trying to address these things very specifically here. And the question for us is, okay, so I get it. What do I do with this? I don't think I'm going headed anywhere where people are against me. 
Lord, what, what do I do with verses like this, with Scriptures like this? So I want to help us glean what I think are four truths out of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, of which Tori read the, the about two-thirds of it. And I want us to glean four, what I think are four things that we can kind of take from this and get out of this. If you will, if you've got your Bible or an app, you'll turn to chapter 13 because he says more specifically what he alludes to in chapter 10. At the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says this, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absence, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Whatever his earlier visits look like, particularly his second visit, and then the, the difficult letter that we've alluded to before that he wrote to them, he says, before, I kind of gave you time to turn. But when I show up this time... It's for real. And there'll be discipline. However, in their context, they, they move that. But he said, there comes a time when you will face the consequences of your decisions. And so that's just the first thing I, I want us to glean. And this comes back a little bit to what we discussed last week. We talked about sowing and reaping. Is that this mirrors God's posture, which is that he is a merciful God. And he, he withholds right judgment often, but that don't fool yourself. I, I hope I don't fool my own heart into thinking that I can just do whatever I want, and because God's forgiving and merciful, there's no consequence. There's no either in a natural sense. Sometimes the judgment and consequence of God is just a natural progression of what happens when you make choices. Sometimes consequence in, in, in the Scripture and judgment comes through natural means, and sometimes it's simply God showing up. But that he says in Second Peter, uh, the Lord says through Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but to, that all should reach repentance. That's why he says, you know, the time of salvation, the day of repentance is today. So the first thing I think we can glean from looking at something like this with Paul is, if, if you're in any way harboring something in your heart that says, well, I know I shouldn't be involved in X, Y, or Z. I know I shouldn't be living like this. I know I shouldn't be. But you know what? It's okay. I mean, uh, tomorrow will be fine to deal with it, right? We all know tomorrow never comes, right? So if something comes and you say, you know what? There's that, there's that relationship that's broken. But I'll, I don't know. I'll, I'll reach out and deal with it later. There's that situation, you know, that situation that I know I've got to deal with. That letter I, I know I've got to write. There's something I've got to do. There's something between God and me. Unlike Paul, the, the, the Corinthians, unlike the Corinthians who knew Paul was coming and he says at the end of this letter, I'm coming, and they knew they had weeks or months before he shows up, we don't know, and... Jesus tells several parables where, you know, the, like the parable in the vineyard where people say, oh, well, we'll just 
kill the son, and then the vineyard will be ours. And he says, you know, you don't know when the Lord of the harvest is coming back. And so the first thing I would glean is that we should live with that zero accounts. Zero, that, that our accounts with God, that we've done what needs to be done as best as we can do it. Because God's judgment, God's promise is a good thing. We, we sometimes fear God's judgment, but we should love God's judgment. Why? Because it's right. We don't always love the judgment on this earth because the judgment is sometimes wrong. But we can be sure that God's judgment is always fair and just. And the good news is, if we repent and turn to God and confess our sins, then we don't bear the weight of that judgment. Then forgiveness reigns. And mercy does reign. But if we hold on to it and say, well, I just can't let go. And these Corinthians have this choice is to say, look, I... You know, I don't know. Are we going to embrace the gospel, embrace Paul? Or are we going to stay obstinate, stay rebellious until he comes and face the consequence? Because, you know, I don't care. Who's Paul? He's just some short, you know, Jewish guy that's going to come. What's he going to do to me? Well, the weight on Paul's side was the spirit of the living God. And the Bible says, don't contend against the spirit of God. You won't be happy. Believe me, I've done it short term. It ain't, it ain't a good move. Just tell, don't contend with God's Spirit. Where we can, let's repent. Let's choose God. Turn to God. Second thing, Paul once again tries to tell them that they are measuring godliness, they're measuring God's blessing wrongly. And I think we would do well to look at this, because in our day and age, I want to read you the four ways that these people in Corinth measured a successful Christian. Here are the four things. These are some from chapter 10, but some come from earlier that we've looked at. The ability to be a really good speaker. Rhetoric was really important, so that people who got elevated to be um, super apostles, or whatever they called them in that day, were super good at communicating persuasively whether or not their lives backed it up. That was not the issue. It was whether they spoke convincingly. First measure of, of success and godliness. Number two, that they were a conduit of ecstatic, miraculous experiences. They were given a pass, in many cases, of lives that reflected Christ if they seem to be conduits of miraculous and ecstatic experiences for people. That comes from both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Number three, they got a lot of endorsements from really well-known apostles and speakers around the area. Chapter 3, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, that recommendations and letters of recommendation was a mark of success and godliness. Lots of endorsements on the books. Number four, that their outward circumstances were free from pain and trouble and persecution and suffering. So those things, Paul did not measure up on any of those four in their book. Takeaway for me and the gleaning for me is don't get sucked into a celebrity culture. Does anybody think we don't live in any more of a celebrity culture now than they did? It isn't very much different. The context looks a little different, but we need to have one person by whom we measure our lives and one person that we look at as the one that we want to have his affirmation and his recommendation to us, and it's Jesus Christ. 
which takes us to the third, right into the third one, which is don't get caught in comparing yourself in your role with anyone else. This is directly from chapter 10. We'll look at uh, verse 12. Paul says, we don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. In your role as a parent, as a teacher, as a spouse, as an employee, as a student, as uh, how many likes on your Facebook, how many things we would want to live in a day where we compare ourselves. And it's a loser either way you look at it. Because if you think you compare well, it breeds pride. And if you think you compare poorly, it breeds inferiority. And so either way, that comparison, Paul says we're not going to stand there and come and be like the uh, contest where we stand four of us next to each other, apostle number one, you know, he does great miracles, he speaks so well, he's very convincing, and here's apostle number four, and he's not much, right? We, this is how our politics works now, right? We just, we just line people up and compare them. This is how our, our media works, this is how we find celebrities now in our culture, Fine, it's fine for that culture. I mean, that's that's the culture, but it's not the church. If Jesus Christ has approved you and commended you because you've fallen under the blood of His Son, then you are you do not need one more act of recommendation because you're recommended to Him. He couldn't love you any more than He does right now if you're in Jesus, and He couldn't love you any less than He does right now. That's Philip Yancey's definition of grace. Can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. You can't do more to make him love you. Even if you had your quiet time every day this week, he isn't going to love you any more than he does right now. And even if you fall short, he's not going to love you any less. But we don't compare how we're doing with others. We look to Jesus. The fourth thing we can take away from this, and one we're going to spend a little more time in, is verses that may be familiar to you, but I want to unpack it just a bit because they're mighty important in our lives. Verses 3 through 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, for Paul's context in this, he's not so much talking about, oh, my personal thought life, I need to make sure I'm not thinking proud thoughts. He's dealing with, the context of this is he's dealing with people who have said, Salvation in Jesus isn't enough. And Paul, you don't represent the true gospel. So for him, it is specifically about who is Jesus Christ. And for us, it is as well, although the spiritual warfare component of this can't be underestimated. Where does the vast majority of spiritual warfare happen? 
right between your ears. This is the Scripture we would derive this from. This is where you we can think about kind of the, the war out there, right, and territorial spirits and all that. I mean, whether that stuff is, you know, there's some scriptural things about that as well. But, guys, you, there's a battle every day right up here for how you're going to live your life. And I want to unpack this a little bit because uses some language we don't use a lot of, this warfare language, and he says in verse 4, it has divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, we don't really use the word stronghold in our daily language anymore, but the word there, ocheroma, Greek word, good Greek word, is a fortified rock prison. And it's a high place. I'm going to look at the, so this is in Salzburg. This is the castle that's above Salzburg. This is a good look at a stronghold. Now, not a prison, it's a palace, but um, the the way it's set up high, look at the walls, think about people hundreds of years ago where you didn't couldn't get overhead with planes, and it's it's pretty intimidating, okay, to look at that. Here's another view of it. If you're thinking about storm the castle, go have fun storming the castle, right? Go, have fun with that, right? Because let me guarantee you, the advantage in that battle is theirs, right? Imagine not even any trees around probably when this was built, right? They see you coming. So what are the strongholds that he's referring to? Because positionally, he says, this is where they live. They're in a very strong, entrenched position. And he tells us in verse 5, we destroy arguments and the, literally it's reasonings. The Greek literal word there means we destroy human reasonings. He said, what? What, am I supposed to destroy my brain? What, am I a Christian? Am I supposed to, like, not think? No. But there's two ways, a worldview, the process of a worldview has to be processed through something. Because if you process your world that there is no God, or that God is so disengaged from life, that's just as much how you frame your thinking as to say there is a God and He is involved. Human reasonings would say, I know best. I determine right and wrong. I determine truth. And if it doesn't make sense to me, then that's my reality. And we live in a day and age where that culturally we become your reality is your reality, my reality is my reality, never the twain shall meet. There's as many truths out there as there are people because your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And and Paul said, this is a stronghold. That the Bible defines truth and it's defined as a person. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am right. I allow you to see life as it should be seen. The second thing that this castle, this fortress, this prison is, is literally, it says, high places. Literally, the Greek says high places. Again, verse 5, we destroy arguments or reasonings. And the, the ESV says every lofty opinion. But it says we destroy high places. Again, that's why we get that picture of that thing up against. So uh, up against the, the mountain. 
we destroy high places against, right, what the knowledge of God. So, when we're thinking about the situations of our life, when you read the paper, when you look at the world going on around you, I want to encourage you that the devil wants nothing more than to say, you've got a corner on the truth, or there's somebody else, your favorite author or your favorite columnist or whatever. They, they see it right. Okay? God has given us a viewpoint and he says this warfare, these weapons that we have, can destroy the strongholds. So how does that work? Let's look at a couple of things as to, to how that works. There's a definition I read this week that I loved about this sort of mindset stronghold. A stronghold mindset is one impregnated with hopelessness that causes us to accept as unchangeable something we know is contrary to God's will. You can read that again. A stronghold mindset is something impregnated with hopelessness that causes us to accept as unchangeable something we know is contrary to God's will. So you look out and you say, well, I know God doesn't want our society to look like this. But that's just the way it is. And it will always be like that. I know I shouldn't have this besetting sin inside me. But it's just the, just the way. I'm, I'm never changing. It's just the way it is. No. That's a stronghold. That's a mindset that says God says He can do something in your heart. He can change you. He can change us as a people. He can work through us as salt and light. Don't believe it that God is unable. Don't get caught thinking, well, that fortress way up there, that's just that human reasoning. I, I'm just not as smart as those people that can articulate this worldview that says there is no God or there can't be a God. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the passion the, the, that I just, I'm, I'm unable to stop myself from whatever it is. You're just looking at the stronghold up there and saying, there is no God. He's not able to do that. But here's what the Bible says. We destroy arguments with what? The weapons of our warfare. But they're not of the flesh. They're not things that we do by... It's not that we don't do anything, but we're not going to destroy these mindsets just with our own efforts. Proverbs 22 22. Great verse. Easy to remember. 22. 22. One who is wise can go up against the city of the mighty and pull down the stronghold in which they trust. One who is wise can do that. What does the Bible teach as a wise person? What is the beginning of wisdom? We first fear the Lord. We Look, and we give God the honor and respect, and that he's, He is an amazing God. We use the weapons that He's given us. You know what a siege ramp is, right? Any of the history people, a siege ramp? Back in the day, when you would try to, to conquer, and I'll show you the last, here's another fortress. This is actually interesting because uh, Cilicia, now in Turkey, was where Paul was from. Tarsus is in Cilicia. And uh, along the coast, the pirates would build 
towers like this where when they took their stuff that they had stolen from the ships, they would take them up to places like that. It's a stronghold. They called them the same word, Ocharomas. And they said, this is a stronghold. Basically, they said, come get it. You want your stuff back? Come get it. And then all these pirates would be up there, and they were like crushing people who came up. And then Rome came in, and about 60 B.C., Pompey says, fine, you picked the wrong ships to rob. And so he takes this overwhelming force, and in some cases they build siege ramps. I don't know if it was at that place or not. But a siege ramp is basically pretty low-tech, pretty low tech, right? There's a lot of different ways to do a siege ramp, but in this case they just take dirt, one shovel full at a time, and they say, we're coming for you. And they just begin to build a ramp up the side, a dirt load at a time. One siege ramp took three and a half years to build a constant work. Can you imagine sitting up there as a fortress, seeing the Roman army, and you've already spent all of your weaponry, all of your ammunition, and they're just bringing a shovel full at a time, and they're waiting you out, because at some point, a stronghold becomes a prison when you have nowhere to go. What the Bible teaches us is that the strongholds of our life should end up being prisons for the reasoning which is against God. And a shovel full of prayer, and a shovel full of Scripture, and a shovel full of obedience at a time, we build a siege ramp up and we say, you're not going to rule my life. You're not going to control me anymore. I'm going to get up to that high tower, and I'm going to destroy you because... The weapons of my warfare are powerful, but that it takes discipline, and it takes when the weapons and the ammunition is coming down at you to not give up. In the original expression that Paul uses there, and I can't, I won't read the whole Greek expression, but he speaks of these spiritual weapons, these spiritual strongholds being demolished by preaching the gospel to yourself and hearing it preached by effective ministers. And effective doesn't mean persuasive speech. It means people who will tell you the truth. Do yourself a favor and listen to people throughout the week. I appreciate that you're here on Sunday, but if you don't, listen to people who effectively preach the gospel. I listen to... Ravi Zacharias, who's a wonderful minister of, he does a podcast each week called Let My People Think, he apologetics and things. I listen to two or three other uh, pastors and preachers that I really get stuff out of that just shovel full at a time is bringing, bringing up the dirt. Um, it's not the wisdom, it's not the, the presentation, it's the truth, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, it's the foolishness of preaching, right? And that this language that Paul uses well may be beating down the walls of Jericho by the priests, blowing their trumpets, praising God and, shout, and shouting, and letting the fortress fall under the path of God. Let me just give you, as we close, three practical things to think about in your thought life. First is this, and I know mental health and, and issues are uh, widespread, and if you've seen the face of it and dealt with people who have mental illness, it is, it is quite difficult. I know that's in some ways a separate category, but all of our thinking, all of our minds have been affected by sin. Okay? So I want to make a sort of a disclaimer in terms of I'm not 
a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying every one of us is struggles with thinking and having our minds reshaped. First thing, everything you and I think is not real and is not right. Every one of us has stuff. Okay? And so our minds, the Bible, Bible uses words like this for our thinking in our minds, troubled minds, depraved minds, dull minds, blinded minds, corrupt minds, all those kinds of adjectives going in front of our thinking. So remember that you may have thoughts that come to you and they're, they're just not right. So analyze them through God's Word and get help from, from other believers. Finally, the or secondly, the arrows are coming at you in this world fast and furious of things that are not true, but seem to be true and seem to be very winning. You don't have to, you can turn on the TV for a second or read almost anything out there. Um, the uh, Proverbs 15, 14 says this, the heart of the wise seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. Great alliteration in addition to good truth. The heart of the wise seeks knowledge, but the mouths of the fools feed on folly. So think about the food you're putting into your mind for this thought life. Okay, Is it good food? Is it just sort of junk food, not either good or bad? Or is it toxic food? Analyze it. Think about it. Because all three of those things are available and out there. You can put stuff into your mind that renews it. You can put stuff in that's just fluff and, and it's you know, just watch, and then you can put stuff in that's just wrong. Here's the corollary to that. Wrong things can be presented incredibly persuasively. Have you ever been persuaded by something, and then in the light of day, we said, what? I thought, that's totally wrong. But in the moment, the way they say it, it sounds so right. Careful. And finally, be intentional about learning from wise, godly people. And I would encourage you to take time from some people who maybe were born after, before 1950 or 1850 or 1750 or 550. Learn from believers throughout the ages. Take your time to see the wisdom that's been accumulated. And if you need recommendations of, of people, I'd be glad to give them to you. The Lord says... Let's, let's close with Psalm 144, verse 2. Because this stronghold, this spiritual warfare going on between our ears, incredibly important. Here's what David says. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress. He is my stronghold and my deliverer. He is my shield. He is the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. So I take those thoughts captive that were sitting up in that high tower and I put them in a new high tower, the fortress of the Lord. Would you pray for me? Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you change our lives and that you help us to glean truth in all sorts of ways. And Lord, this very important letter that we have from Paul, Lord, help us to glean some truth from this in terms of the way we live. Lord, that we wouldn't be slack concerning 
your judgment that we wouldn't wait and push off what needs to be done, that you would tenderize our spirits and quicken us, Lord. And Father, that you would show us how not to compare ourselves, Lord, or not to look at others and judge them by things that aren't the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but that we would have clear insight. And finally, Lord, help us to walk in clarity of mind so that we can tear down the strongholds that our world is so full of and we might think clearly and rightly about you and your word. Lord, we can do all these things not because we're smart, not because we're capable or better than anyone else, but because you have saved us. You have, Lord, come and, and we've we're people who are completely at your mercy and at your disposal. Lord, in the foolishness that it seems to worship one who was crucified on a cross, Lord, becomes a new story when we see that the same one rose from the dead, that it is the power that you demonstrated Lord, that makes it real.